Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. A call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 19, verse 25. Strike a scoffer, and the simple will become wary. Rebuke one who has understanding, and he will discern knowledge. Here we see an occasion in which two different kinds of men receive a rebuke. And we have two different results. But you'll notice that in both instances, God uses adversity for the betterment of mankind. A scoffer has made a conscious decision to do evil. He mocks wisdom and goodness, and he belittles the actions of good men. God uses the adversity of being stricken to teach him to at least keep his eyes open to see who's around when he scoffs. He becomes wary, and this is to the advantage of society. However, even if he will not learn his lesson, other simpletons may see the consequences of his scoffing and may learn wisdom in not proceeding down that path. The simple need instruction and swift and just punishment is a sure deterrent to evil and wickedness. But the adversity which is encountered by a wise man increases his wisdom. Rebuke one who has understanding and he will discern knowledge. In their humility, wise men know how to take a hit. They don't puff themselves up so that they pop when they're knocked down. Instead, they learn and grow. It was wisdom when the noted inventor Thomas Edison said, If I find 10,000 ways something won't work, I haven't failed. I'm not discouraged because every wrong attempt discarded is another step forward. When you get knocked down, get back up, dust off your pants, and get back to work a little bit smarter. Learn from your mistakes and build on your successes. You cannot guarantee success in this life, but if you won't learn from your mistakes, you can guarantee failure. Humility, patience, and diligence are tremendous wisdom in a fallen world. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so please kneel. So we're halfway through the book, chapter 6. There's 12 chapters, and this is chapter 6. In his first two arguments, Solomon explained that man's wisdom runs up against the wall in finding meaning in life on his own. In other words, life under the sun is a mist, it's vaporous, and it is vain without God. Then Solomon taught us that God is sovereign over all of life, and, God, and then he dealt with the objections to this doctrine, concluding that enjoyment of the vanity is the gift, is a gift from him. And today we start Solomon's third argument in the book, the third argument of four. So let's have an overview of that argument so we kind of get a sense for where he's going in the text. The gist of this argument is that the sovereign God alone gives the power to enjoy vanity. 
So at first he said, life is vain. There's no inherent good in man that he could be, that, that man could, could enjoy good in this life. There's nothing good in, in man. And then he said, God's sovereign over everything. And so now the next argument is that, that because God is sovereign, he is the one who gives the power for us to enjoy vanity. He unlocks the key to enjoyment. This week and next week we'll be covering the first section of this argument, which deals with appearances. We must learn to evaluate our outward condition properly. In today's text, we'll see that prosperity isn't necessarily good. It's not automatically good. Next week, we'll see that adversity isn't necessarily bad. And the conclusion of this section leaves us with the knowledge that God sorts out the details because he's in control despite the apparent fact of injustice. Verses 13 to 15 of chapter 7. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that men can find out nothing that will come after him. I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There's a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. So, according to outward appearances, life doesn't seem fair. In a few weeks, in the second section of the third argument, chapter 7, verse 16 to 29, we'll see that in the light of God's sovereignty, we must evaluate men properly. For as the conclusion of this section puts it, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In that section, Solomon will talk about some of the ways men try to outsmart God and each other and what wisdom is in these scenarios. In the final section of the third argument, chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, Solomon explains that the sin of powerful men makes confusion. And sometimes wise men are forced to choose between the lesser of two evils. And injustice inevitably takes place, but God will judge in the end. This is part of the vanity of life under the sun. However, he concludes, nonetheless, that wisdom makes merry, knowing that God is sovereign over it all. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commended enjoyment, because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. So now that we've got a sense of the direction of the, the argument at large, let's look at today's text. He starts out by telling us that there are unsatisfactory wealth, riches, and honor. Verses 1 and 2. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. Solomon starts out by telling us about his observation. There's an evil he has seen, and it is great. It is common among men who have good things. The things which other men envy, riches, wealth, and honor, glory. 
these men that have all these good things are frequently unable to enjoy them. Instead, they're given over to a stranger in the end. These are the men who he referred to earlier in chapter 2, verse 26. To the sinner, he, God, gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. So even though they're piling up riches and wealth and good things, objectively good things, if God doesn't give them the power to enjoy it because of their sin, they're storing it up for a righteous man later on. A man who will know how to take those good things and invest them and enjoy them and use them. Men in this position suffer vanity and an evil affliction. They have no satisfaction from their stuff. And Solomon goes on in the text to explain his point with a hypothetical statement. Verses 3 to 6. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. It's better to be a stillborn child than to live a long and full life and have, have many years and many children... A hundred children, if you don't see goodness. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. The stillborn child, it has a very short life experience. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. Verses 3 through 6. How many times do rich, wealthy, or famous people say or think, what good is it all if you don't have your health? That's that 100 years, 2,000 years. Or, or, or what's it all worth? Or, or it's all worth it for their kids. They're going to do it. They're going to they're suffer through life, and they're going to do this all. And the whole point of it is for their children. But in these verses, Solomon gives us a striking comparison. He says it would be better to be stillborn than to have that health and that long life. It would be better to be stillborn than to have many children, hundreds of children. It would be better to never see the light of day than that if you don't see goodness in it. Here in verses 4 through 6, Solomon shows us the definition of satisfaction. In Solomon's great wisdom, he recognized that there is no inherent good in children. His first argument is that there's no inherent good in man. Second argument is that, or in his third argument here, he's saying there's no inherent good in children. They are not good in and of themselves. It is possible to have hundreds of them and still not be satisfied with goodness. So there's not automatic goodness in having kids. It's a question of God's blessing there. Does he grant them faithfulness? Does he grant them grace? Next, he recognizes that there's no inherent good in life, just breathing in and out in health. There's no inherent good in life per se. Life needs animation to be good. For there to be any purpose in life, 
and any rest, there must be satisfaction. There must be a vision of goodness. If he has not seen goodness, is what he says, is the problem. If there's no vision of goodness, otherwise life is full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's a meaningless, restless, useless turmoil. It's a burdensome task without any point to it all. There's no good in it. There's no fulfillment there. Without goodness, you are just prolonging the agony. At least a stillborn child doesn't suffer through such meaninglessness. In the, and in the end, aren't they both buried in the ground anyway? Don't both end up in the grave. Whether the man lives 2,000 years and has 100 kids, if he never has fulfillment, if he never sees goodness, if he never sees joy, he's just raging against God. He's kicking against the goats, and he ends up in the grave. And he's got this whole life of suffering to show for it. So far, Solomon has pointed to all of the things that men look for to see who's who and who has the good life. When you look around in the world under the sun and you see men with riches, wealth, honor, long life, and children, don't assume that they are in God's favor. They certainly have blessings from him. But blessings are blessings only when God gives the corresponding faithfulness to enjoy them. Without goodness, without God, they are empty. Without goodness, you're piling up rocks, because that's about as much good as they'll do for you. And it's hard labor. So next, Solomon gives us wisdom in the light of this. Verses 7 to 9, starting at verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Life is repetitious. Men work to eat, and they eat to live, and then in order to keep living, they must work so that they can eat again. No matter how full you get, you will get hungry again as long as you stay alive. So, all the labor of man is for his mouth, and the soul is not satisfied. Next, according to worldly standards, there's no difference between the wise man and the fool. Verse 8. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? In Solomon's wisdom, he perceives that the difference between the wise man and the fool cannot be perceived by looking at exteriors. They both may live in nice houses. They both may drive nice cars. They both, both may be in good health, and they both may have 3.5 children. Simply looking at statistics will not distinguish the wise man from the fool. Simply looking at the numbers will not reveal their ultimate blessing or curse. Simply judging will not display whether they are satisfied or craven with their God-given heritage. Life isn't simple. Wisdom is necessary. And even a poor man 
who is objectively having less than a rich, wealthy man who has no satisfaction, even a poor man who knows how to walk before the living, that is, injustice and uprightness and righteousness and purity and in faith, even a poor man who knows how to walk before the living has much more than the rich and wealthy and honored fool. So you cannot judge based on possessions. We must look past possessions to see truth. The next wisdom Solomon gives us is in verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. This explains how a poor man can have much more than a rich, wealthy, and glorious fool. It's because he's satisfied with what his lot is. He enjoys what God has given him. Rich men can be just as envious and greedy as the poor man can be. It's a question of wisdom and foolishness. This is the biblical variant of our proverb. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. It's better to be content with what you have than to be forever chasing after mirages. Because desire is a dangerous motivator. Because it's never satisfied. Once a desired object is attained, our souls are enormously capable of despising it by lusting after the next object of desire. Or despising it because it didn't give us the fulfillment that we expected it to give us when we pursued it. As soon as you get that shiny new technology, it is displaced by the next model that has a better screen. It has 4G network and more memory and a faster processor and a better camera. This is vanity and grasping for the wind. There's always more to desire. That, when, that thing is not goodness. God can bless you with, with the stuff he gives you. And when he does, rejoice, praise God. But find goodness in him, not in the stuff. Finally, Solomon finishes our text by declaring that every man answers to God. Verse 10. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. God predestines and ordains who and what every man is. He has given to every man his lot. And every man is who he is because that is who God wanted him to be. He cannot be more than man, and he cannot be less than man. God named him, and he is called by his name. What are you going to do? Fight with God? You don't have a chance. You're kicking against the goads, and you will lose. Yet... Men incessantly seem to think that they can do it better than how God tells them to do it. So they amass their wealth, and they build up these vast reserves, and they seek out their idols. It's like the parable that Jesus says about the wealthy man who had to tear down his barns and build bigger ones so that he could fill them up with food. And when he had them full and he thought, now I can eat, drink, and be merry, God said, tonight you die. So he built up all that wealth just so God could give it to the foreigner. Because he saw his salvation in the stuff. 
Solomon makes a very astute observation precisely here. Verse 11. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? All the things that men pile up to shield themselves from God and his fierce wrath against sin and wickedness are nothing but amassed air. They're vanity. They're a giant puff of wind. Emptiness. They can't, man cannot pull himself up by his bootstraps because there's no good in him. He's just digging himself a deeper hole to fall into. Verse 12. For who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Who knows? Who knows what is good for man? Who knows the future? Obviously, God knows. Solomon has just finished his whole second argument, in which that was the whole point. God knows what is good for a man. God is sovereign. God ordains the times. God makes everything beautiful and fitting in its time. God knows what a man is supposed to do in his life. God can tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong. So all the things that men do to change their fortunes, all the appearances that men spend so much time altering, say nothing about whether that man is under God's blessing or if he's spinning his wheels because he's under God's curse. Consider how much advertisement is based on appearances. Every product is sold by the company trying to convince you that it is good for you. It is what you should do. And it will improve your prospects and your future. Who knows what is good for man in a life? All the days of his vain life in which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? The company is trying to tell you they know what's good for you. What they know is what's good for their pocketbook. Every product is sold by the company trying to convince you that, that what their product is good for you, it's what you should do, and it will improve your future. It doesn't matter if the product is beer, a car, a house, clothing, surgery, glasses, technology, really anything and everything. The be this beer will make you have a good time in the future. That car will make your life better. That stock will provide for your future. These shoes will make you irresistible to men. This is vanity and grasping for the wind. Don't get me wrong. I am not against good beer, nice cars, or cool technology. That's not the point. The point is that the car, the phone, and the house say nothing about whether you are walking with God or not. Wisdom is necessary to make that determination. Don't confuse material blessings with God's approval. Because prosperity is not automatically good. In Pastor Wilson's book about Ecclesiastes, The Joy at the End of the Tether, he used a great metaphor for this. He said, it's like God's given men cans of peaches, but to the faithful he gives a can opener. Men who seem to have it all, but don't enjoy it, are hoarding cans of peaches, but can do nothing 
better than to look at the labels because licking them won't taste very good. And one can of peaches with a can opener is better than starving with a pantry full of peaches and no way to get at them. Peaches are good, and God is good. He sends his sunshine and rain on the just and on the unjust. The point of Ecclesiastes is that the gift of God is the ability to enjoy life under the sun. And men are frustrating blind in our world when it comes to this. We live in an incredibly prosperous society. Our wealth is astounding. Especially by comparison to people across the globe. And even more by comparison with men in history. In the past. God has poured out his peaches on us. And at the same time, we have fallen from grace. In that our society more and more marginalizes faith and God. Atheists are rallying in the streets. And Christians are cowering in their churches. The appalling murder of innocent babies is being carried on day in and day out in our cities. The most rebellious contingents in our society have hijacked the media and they're hammering away at our social morality and challenging the very definition of marriage. All in the glorious name of their intolerant God, tolerance. All the while we are happy to go along with the status quo as long as there isn't a draft to support our ongoing wars, as long as gas prices don't rise above $4.50 a gallon, and as long as our cable and internet access isn't interfered with. By all accounts, we are incredibly prosperous. But that doesn't negate the fact that this is not automatically good. Earlier in the text, we talked about the necessary ingredient for satisfaction with prosperity. And that was a vision of goodness. If we desire to be blessed in our prosperity, we must see God in it and through it. God is sovereign and he is good. We must not allow our desire for prosperity to block our vision of him. We must live our lives by faith, because while prosperity is not automatically good, the life of faith is automatically good. According to Hebrews 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. What this is saying is that faith is a vision of God and his work in the world, even though you can't see him. When God reveals himself to us and when he shows us his truth so that we live in the world according to the way it actually is, the way he actually made it, that is living by faith. When we know Jesus and him crucified, when we see God's kindness and self-sacrifice, and we determine to live according to that revelation, that is the life of faith. And that is automatically good. Jesus Christ gives us the power to change the world. And that power is the power of the gospel. 
This is evident throughout the Gospels, but I selected a few texts that deal specifically with appearances. Do you remember the rich young ruler? This passage comes to us from all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and it takes place on the way to Jerusalem while Jesus is trying to communicate to his, to his disciples that his kingdom is not of this world, and that it won't look like this world would think it would look like. Instead, Jesus' kingdom is for the sick and the outcasts. It is for the little children, of which he says, of such is the kingdom of God. But when the rich young ruler comes, the one who the disciples wanted Jesus to welcome with open arms, this is what we read. And for the interest of time, we'll start at verse 20, partway into the story. The young man said to him, All these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Jesus' teaching here recalls his parables of the hidden treasure which a man found buried in a field. So he sold all his possessions so he could buy that parcel of land. Or the parable of the pearl of great price which the pearl merchant sold everything he had so that he could have that one thing because it was true treasure. And the point is that the kingdom of God is worth all of the riches in the world. Reading on in verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And the point is that men look on the outside, and it is only with the eyes of faith that we can see God's working in our lives and through the stuff. Immediately after this, the gospel segues into a discussion of the apostles' reward. Matthew 19, verse 27 to 30. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or wife, or children, or lands, for My name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus doesn't say that following after him is the equivalent of a vow of poverty. He's not saying that if you want to be a Christian, you must sell everything you have. What he says is that the ultimate reward of following him far surpasses the present loss. Even if it looks like, if it appears that you are making a bad trade, God will reward faithfulness. And finally, in Matthew 16, Jesus point-blank describes the actual transaction that is going on in the Gospel. Verses 24 to 27. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You can't put it any more bluntly than that. God is God, and Jesus is King. That is the gospel. Jesus gives us life and blessing and reward, but we need to trust him for it. Sometimes that will mean we need to forego some prosperity. And it certainly means that we must not let prosperity get between us and Jesus. We must live life by faith, and we shall see good. If we do that, we shall know enjoyment in all the vanity. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. Life under the sun is temporary, but it is a gift from God. Food and drink are temporary, but they are gifts from God. Riches and wealth and glory are temporary, but they are gifts from God. Gifts from God are to be enjoyed, and they are to be received with gratitude and praise to the giver. The one gift that God gives us that is not temporary is Jesus. God gives us himself. But the glory of that gift is that it gives meaning to all the temporary ones. When Jesus, with Jesus, God gives us faith that we may live in his revelation. With Jesus, God gives us hope that we may have joy in the darkness and peace in the vanity. And with Jesus, God gives us love, his love, which gives us life and makes that life a spring coming out of us. But the greatest of these is love. For in the life hereafter, our faith will be seen and our hope will be realized, but our love will grow forever and ever. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.